All right, if you have your Bibles, please open to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 to 25 is going to be our study this evening. First John chapter 2, verse 18 to 25. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. Now you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. Lord, we we pray that as we study your word, every time that we cherish it, that that impacts our hearts, that does not fall into deaf ears. Lord, we're grateful for the privilege to be able to come to this place safely, to be able to learn your word, Lord, we ask that you would give us attentive ears, uh, not just to hear it audibly, but that it would impact and change our hearts so that we can um, live faithfully, Lord. May we be marked by our love for one another and um, and love for you, Lord. Thank you for this time. pray these things in your son's name. Amen. As a parent, one of the things I've realized is that uh, it's hard to be a parent and train your child. There's so many things that you have to worry about. Some things are... Uh, just like basic life things, like this is a fork. It does not go into your eyeball. It does not go into the electrical sockets. They're just random things that parents have to uh, just learn. But one of the greatest burdens, I think, for me is to eventually tell my kids that the world is a very dangerous place. Uh, as our love, and as our daughter grows, our love for our daughter grows, and which also means our concern for our child grows. At some point, we need to tell them that there are certain places you shouldn't go and there are certain people that you need to be mindful of because this world is a broken place. It's a place that's filled with sin. It's a place that is dangerous. And there are people and places that can endanger the well-being. And in my mind, I'm just praying for wisdom for those moments because it's, it's going to be really you know, earth-shattering. Because in the eyes of a child, everything is fun. I remember when I was a kid, there were just certain places that I can go, and, uh, and you know, I could go with my, my siblings and unsupervised, and there would be no harm afterwards. And now as society grows and there's sin more rampant than there was, such amusements are taken with extreme precaution. Parents need to warn their kids 
that there are bad people in bad places and bad situations that will harm them. I think this is how John feels when he comes, when he's writing this letter to the people, in the, the people in the church here. He has this care for them, this love for them. He sees how they are struggling between these false teachers and what they've heard before, and he wants to give them comfort. He seems to go back and forth between speaking those that are denying the faith and then those that are followers of Christ. John wants to warn the true believers of these false Christians, and he wants to warn these Christians of them because these false prophets are going to try to get into the church and draw them away, not just the physical campus or the place of the church, but draw them away from a different gospel altogether. John is trying to counter the fake prophets, the fake Christians here. At the same time, he, tries to, he wants to confirm and comfort the real Christians. He's trying to counter the fake Christians by, because of the way that they live and the things that they teach. All the things that they do are from the devil. He, he wants to even call them to repentance. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, we see that, John writes, I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. If someone read this and are one of those false teachers or the false Christians, this is directed at them. This is attack their theology as well as their lifestyle because it is a lie and their end is destruction. But it's not, because, it's not just that there are these false teachers that are sitting there in the church. No, these false teachers are never content with just holding these horrible and false doctrines to themselves. They want to take others down with them if they can. And this is not new. False teachers aren't going to, false teachers aren't always going to be people uh, with a theology degree or, or any training. They just have enough education of God's word to distort it, to warp it, to make it sound like the truth, but really it isn't. Uh, example, I think, as an indicator for non-Christians who can't, seem to be able to control themselves. See, these, there were people in the church that lived contrary to Scripture. And in every church, there's always going to be people that call themselves Christians but act totally different. I think one example of that, an indicator of a non-Christian, is that they, have, they seem to have no control or even desire to control their bodies or control their lives. A false Christian, for one example, would be someone that have a lack of desire to work. There's a reason why lazy people are always confronted in the Bible. If you read the book of Proverbs, the Bible doesn't speak highly of lazy people. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 to 13, it reads, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle, and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourself know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food or charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that, you would not be a, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did, not, but we did to, to make ourselves an example so to you so that you would not so that you would imitate us in fact when we were with you this is what we commanded you if anyone isn't willing to work he should not eat 
people at this point had no self-control. They chose to be lazy and not moved by the Spirit, but rather they were controlled by their own flesh. Lazy people are not godly people, and potentially the reason why they're not controlled by the Spirit is because they were not saved to begin with. Another example of a false Christian is that they have no desire to live holy lives. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, it says that the will of the Father is that you live a holy life, that you are sanctified, that you abstain from sexual sin. And if pornography is something that enslaves you, then pornography is your master, not Jesus Christ. Put another way, if it is God's will for your sanctification, you're not, and you're not doing the will of God, then that should prick your conscience on where your heart is because Jesus said that those who do who does the will of the Father are his. Last week we talked about the, the lack of love that is evidenced in a false Christian. They get, there are people in the church that was hating against one another, and that's not a mark of a Christian. If you follow Jesus' footstep, then it will lead you to a lifestyle of love. Therefore, a true Christian can't be filled with hatred towards one another. How a person lives their lives will tell you exactly if they truly worship Jesus. You may not deny Jesus with your lips, but by your lifestyle, by your actions, and the rest of your body, you show that you deny him as your master. What is truly sinister about false converts, though, is that eventually they become false teachers. See, they aren't just content with manifesting sin in their own lives. They need justification. They need, uh, they need people to join them because the word of God and even other believers are convicting them through the word of God. And they feel that their lifestyle is not worth giving up. We see this in Jude 4, that people will, you give up, will deny the liberties of, of Christianity to live a lifestyle of licentiousness. At the same time, there are those that are in Christ that are discouraged. And then when they see these people live in sin, they realize, like, maybe my holy living is not worth it. Maybe my holy, my holy living is actually not what God commands. Maybe I should consider following and living like these individuals. John here is trying to assure them that they know the truth. They've heard it before from him. They were discipled. They were shepherded by John. They need to hold on to that truth. Truth is the birthright for the Christian. There are true Christians that look at their lives of self, and they look at the lives of the self-deceived false Christians and think maybe these people are worth imitating. The reality is that even as pastors, we can't decipher fully who is a believer and who is not. Charles Spurgeon once said that if there was a, if there was a way for people to just have a giant letter E on top of their head so that he knows who are the elect, then ministry would be a lot easier. He knows who to confront and he knows who to encourage and comfort. But we don't know that. We don't have that as a tool. So therefore, we just preach God's word so that your eyes will stay focused on Christ, even if you see potential false Christian lifestyles around you. That if you see these things, that you see that it will not deter you from walking faithfully with God. Rather, you walk obediently because you know this is what God's word has to say. This is the shepherd's heart. He, John wants to counter these false teachers and comfort the true Christians. I think in this context, like this Bible study, there are those that are the saints and there are those that ain't. That's like a little sermon title. 
There are those who actually truly need comfort and fed by the word of God. And over time, they'll become, mature, they'll become a mature, godly man and woman that God intended. While at the same time, I'm also aware that even, in the per, even if the person themselves are not aware of it, that there are those who are not truly saved. They can say the right things, but the truth is that is not in them. The truth is not in the persons. So for us this evening... This passage makes this contrast between the saints and the angels. And if, you are, if you're taking notes, I'm going to do it differently. I'm not going to give, like, point outline. Just draw, like, a little, you know, like those pro-con lists. I'm going to talk about what a believer looks like and what a non-believer looks like. We'll just go back and forth. So if you were to just, you know, you're no, taking notes, just divide it in half and have one side. Here's what the marks of a believer looks like, the saints, and the other side, the angels. And as I go through it, you can just try to figure out which side, which one is which. What is the characteristic of one and the other looks like? I figured I want to do this because that's how John does it. John goes back and forth between speaking uh, between a non-Christian and a Christian, and this is how we're going to study this text. We'll go back and forth between one and the other. So start by looking at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. Again, John's using these familiar terms, children. This is a family He's speaking to them like a, like a father to them. He's comforting them regarding those that have left the church. What they see and are experiencing are nothing new. The apostle told them that this was going to happen. In fact, Jesus told them that this was going to happen. That there will be a time when there will be false Christians coming into the church, disguising themselves as Christ to try to lure people away from Christ. And this phrase, last hour, does not mean that uh, there's only a certain amount of hours left or time but rather there is an understanding that Christ will fulfill his promise in returning to them. He'll return one day into, uh, back to earth. This last hour is used as a general term to mean any time after Christ ascended into heaven. Just as you heard, notice the phrase, just as you heard that the Antichrist coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Although they understand that one day Satan will come, the real, the Antichrist will come to deceive and wage war against God, John here is aware that there is currently other little Antichrists that exist and even are presently with them. Marking out the, marking up the end are people that are coming into the church to defame, distort the name of Christ. The Gnostics were the people that they were talking to. These, these Gnostics claimed that, oh, we know something that, the, that John doesn't know about. We have this one truth that others don't know. And what, what they teach is that Jesus Christ did not come physically. And that means that it distorts the atonement. It means that it, the, the cross was not actually, didn't actually happen. This is the type of teaching that they were going up against. And every false teacher is an antichrist. The word antichrist is unique because John is the only one that uses this term. He uses it again in 2 John. He's, he speaks much of it in Revelation. But he's the only one that uses this term. And the antichrist means to be someone that is against Christ or someone that impersonates Christ. Depending on how the context uses, is either someone that's like anti-God, like he wants to attack the Lord, or he's someone that wants to impersonate Christ. It is a speak of an assault that, and those who want to put themselves in place of Christ. While the other meaning is, is someone that tries to just copy and imitate. You try to say, that, oh, I am the Messiah. And then they try to say things that sound like what Jesus would say, but they just add or take away certain things that Jesus would actually teach. The one 
that are against Christ are usually open about it, while the one that impersonate Christ are usually very subtle about it. False teachers come in, and false teachers go, and false teachers will come and go back then and now. And part of the devil's deception is to flood the world with lies so that people cannot recognize truth from error. Just like the appearing of the Antichrist is God's fulfillment of his word, so is the promise of the second coming. As Christians, we look forward to that day. From this we know it is the last hour. The evidence that John has in terms of trusting the accuracy of God's word is the appearance of all of these antichrists who hates God and impersonates Christ. Just for reality check, understand that, that what John is speaking of isn't necessarily like cults, like other world religions. He knows, and even the people in the church understands that other religions are false. Like we think of like Islam or Mormonism. You know, we know that these things are wrong, but he's talking about those that are just like, they add something to it. You know, people that think like you need to be baptized to be saved or you need to do, you need to, if you don't worship on the Sabbath and you're not saved. Those are the people that John's talking about. People that use and distort the word of God so that it confuses the true believers. It's the danger that's from within that John is speaking of. People who act like they're Christian, who seem to know the Christian lingo, only to reveal that they were wolves in shepherds' clothing. There is a danger in a type of church like this to be drawn to certain personalities. They may have the right doctrine. They may be persuasive with their words, but they, they, may, they may not overtly deny Jesus Christ. But there are some people who deny his call for us to live a holy life. Always be cautious of your own walk. Either the people in your company will sharpen you to be more like Christ, or they will corrupt you to be more like the world. Again, that can happen in the context of the church. The danger that I've seen is that there are those that are sometimes so loyal to a personality that when the, when the leader fail, fails and, and tries to live immorally, some people will follow suit as well. Be aware of these type of antichrists that is or will come in the context of the local church. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. This is probably one of the saddest Bible verses in all of Scripture. The reality is there's some people that have fallen the church at the time had lost many of their members. And if you can imagine, some of them are their friends. Some of them are their family members. And some of them, they've even served together. So they, they've endured persecution with one another. And then somehow, this one false teaching was able to split people that were of the truth and of this lie. These deserters of the faith showed where their loyalty truly lies. There were some that were formerly professing Christians then they went out. The assurance of genuine faith is endurance. The word went out means to move away, to relocate, to uproot themselves. But that didn't truly, but they realized in reality, they didn't really truly move away. Rather, their hearts were never with Christ to begin with. They may have been physically there with them, but they were not with them in terms of what they loved the most. Had they truly been part of the church, they would have stayed and remained with them. This word remain is this idea of continually dwelling or keep 
on staying with in this one location. These people aren't talking about staying in terms of physically, but rather the abiding with Christ. These people remain with the king while some people were deserters of the faith. As a Christian, you will sadly find that there will be more people in your life that will leave the faith than you would like to imagine. I remember a few year or two ago, there was one of my one of my pastor friends that was disqualified, and it kind of rocked us a little bit. And one of this, this other pastor, a very wise thing, said, you know, you'll find that there's actually a lot less people that will finish the race well. At the end of pastoral ministry, you'll find that you will have very little in terms of peers. And that was really convicting for me. And, that was, and that's true, not just peers, but even the people that are in the church. There will be a lot more people as, as time and persecution comes will eventually leave the faith. And John is telling us that we all need to hold on to Christ, that we remain with Jesus. It may seem that some people chose to, you know, some people that leave the faith, they may choose to ignore you or sever those ties. But remember that when these people leave, they did, they're not leaving you. Rather, they're leaving Christ. Leaving you is just, it's just, a, it's just a byproduct of that. Again, we here at the Bible, we don't care about attendance because we know that attendance doesn't make you a holy person. You being here does not make you a greater student of God's word. You being here, presently here, does not make you have a greater affection for God. Your attendance doesn't guarantee your assurance. This is why we focus so little on programs and try to find ways to draw a crowd or to entertain you, but rather we focus on the word of God so you can be fed the word of God so you can grow as a believer. For the Christian, commitment shouldn't be a problem because our commitment to the church, whether it's a Sunday or Friday or whatever type of discipleship group you're part of, we commit to the body of Christ because we love Jesus and we want to be with the people who also love our Savior. You should want to be with, with your other brothers and sisters in the church. John here is placing a high view of the church. You should want to commit your life to being part of church life. Not because things are convenient, but because you love God and you love his people. But if you're not a Christian, then the things of Christ will eventually become too exhausting for you. The, the activities of church, the fellowship will become too boring for you. And eventually you'll just leave. You'll just see the church or any church activity as just some sort of social club. You should want to be here to learn to worship God and to, learn, and to, and to know him, to love him more. Is the reason why you, if the reason why you're here is for anything else but to learn and grow in Christ likeness, then just stop coming, stop wasting your time. Do something else with your life. Playing Christians doesn't actually make you a Christian. And then so ask yourself, why are you here? When we sing these songs, are you really singing to the Lord with a thankful and joyful heart? When we have small group discussion, are you trying to, are you, are you hoping to be sharpened, encouraged, even convicted? Or are you just a way to just hang out? When you give to the Lord, when you give money to the Lord, is it actually to, to further the ministry that's going on in the church? Or are you just giving because, you're, because you feel that other people are looking and you want to make sure that other people know that you are a quote-unquote Christian? Why are you here? There are people who will share our company now that will not share our company when we're in heaven. 
They share these earthly activities, but they will not share our spiritual realities. Some will reveal what is going on with their lives by their defection of the faith. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. The contrast here begins by describing those that that are anointed by the Holy Spirit, or the Holy One. Uh, to be anointed by God is to be set apart. Scripture speaks of anointing in the Old Testament with, um, with unique figures, things like David and Saul and Samuel. They were anointed by a prophet to say that they were going to be set apart to be used by God for a particular task. It is used, even in, the, in if you read Leviticus, to describe a priest, someone that's going to represent God uh, to man and man to God. The picture is similar to us in this context in that Christians are designed for a particular purpose and they are supposed to represent God to the world. John here is talking about the receiving of the Holy Spirit. The result of new birth is that the, is that the Holy Spirit will indwell in you. You will receive the Holy Spirit and then now you will know truth. You have, you have, you have knowledge of Christ, the word of Christ, and now you know how to live like Christ. John is saying that they already know these things. God's gift to every believer is now their eyes are opened and they can see the truth. Multiple times in the gospel of John, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will come and be a helper and teach them. There were probably some Gnostics that wanted to take these faithful saints with them and these Christians resisted. They tried to lure them. Hey, your gospel is not complete. So they try to take people away. These false teachers and followers are often people that actually have truth at one point in their life. But that truth is not from the Holy Spirit. They just have this intellectual truth. When I was in L.A., there was a, there was a cult that came to, uh, to our door. And my roommate and I were there, and they were saying either from this mother God cult. They didn't use the word cult. I just translated that in my head when they said, oh, have you heard about this mother God from Korea? I'm like, okay, cult. And... Um, I was like, all right, let's, let's tell me about this mother God. And she was, he was saying, like, she's this Korean lady, and then all these people prophesied, and they bent all these verses and say, yeah, she's, like, the living one. And we're like, okay. First of all, uh, you need to repent. I have no idea what you're talking about because they're, like, just butchering verses here and there. And then I asked them, like, hey, man, where are you from? He's like, I'm from Oakland. I was like, oh, I'm from Oakland. He's like, you got to, uh, come on, man, you got to represent Oakland a little bit better than this. And I told them about the gospel. I, I told them, like, okay, you, you're, you've, wore, you've, been dilute, you've, been, you've been tricked into this cult. And he's like, you know, everything that you are saying to me, I used to believe. You know, they, they, they left Christ because they were never really with Christ. Not just this individual, but you'll notice that every false teacher, every major cult leader comes from the, from the church. They're usually part of the church for a while, and in their disgruntled attitude and discontentment, they begin to create their own following. They begin to make their own cult. They have enough right teaching to just add and take away and alter enough so that the unsuspecting Christian will be taken away. Eventually, these cult leaders will, will, will cause a riot and leave the church, and it's evident that they were never with us to begin with. Faithfulness to Christ are people who stay with Christ and his church. So how are you in terms of your commitment to the local body? When you think about your time spent, how is, how is, how is it in terms of spending time with other brothers and sisters? When you think about Saturday night before going to church, what is your attitude? Is it of joy because you get to learn and sing praises to the Lord? Or is it oh, Saturday night? I can't, oh, church again. 
oh man, I gotta wake up at eight or earlier. I gotta wake up at eight so this gets at 11. So, you know, what is your attitude about the church? Verse 21. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from truth. John is writing to them not as a way to be an apologist per se, but he wants them to know that they, what they have heard and what they know is the truth. They can trust what they know about God and what they are currently reading. The people need to hold onto the truth that was given to them before. Whenever I debate a Muslim or, or, or Mormon, uh, both are shocked in the way that I, that I describe the Book of Mormon or the Quran, uh, because I just blatantly tell them that it's wrong. Like, your book is wrong. And they're, like, surprised by this. And I know that's not completely correct to say, like, hey, your book is wrong, but I don't care, like, whatever. Because even the Quran and, and the Book of Mormon, they'll say things like, well, there's history. We can, we can uh, trace with uh, secular history, and the Book of Mormon talks about things in history. And I say, no, all the stuff that you, all your texts are fake. Your history is wrong. Not only that, but even, even similar characters, like the Book of Mormon will talk about Jesus, the Quran will talk about Jesus. Like, I'll say those Jesus are not the real Jesus. Your God is not the real God. Your Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit. They are all of the devil. Muhammad is of the devil. Joseph Smith is of the devil. And they'll like freak out that I'll say that out loud. I don't care. Because I care about their souls more than I care about being light. But yes, interesting about these both, these two major religions at least, they argue against the deity of Christ and the sufficiency of scripture. And oftentimes it's the denial of the sufficiency and the authority and the infallibility of scripture that leads to the conclusion that Christ is not Christ, that he's not a God. That he's not the God. And again, it's often the, former, the, the second that leads to the, the former. They would deny scripture and then they deny Christ. And I've asked both groups in different, different not, not like talk to both at the same time, but you know, in our individuals. I asked them, like, is God all-knowing and all-powerful? The Mormon will say, yes, God is all-knowing and all-powerful. And the Muslim will say, yes, Allah is all-knowing and all-powerful. And I'll ask him, if God is powerful enough, is he able to protect the, the, the Book of Mormon or the Quran? They'll say, yes. And I'll say, well, what if that book gets corrupted? And they'll say, no, it can't because God will protect his word. To which I ask, if God is so powerful, then why didn't he protect the New and the Old Testament then? And they would say, because men can corrupt it. Then I would ask again, if you claim that God is so powerful enough, then why can't he protect the Old and the New Testament. You just said that he's all-powerful. You said he can do all of these things. Why, did, can't he, why couldn't he have protected the Old and New Testament? Because if your God is able, unable to protect the Bible because men is able to corrupt it, then what makes you think that men can't corrupt the books that you have? Either God is all-powerful to protect his word, which then that means you can't trust the Book of Mormon or the Quran, or God is all-powerful able to protect his word, which means you still can't trust the Book of Mormon, or the Quran, to which they usually don't answer and say, okay, have a nice day, and they don't want to talk to me ever again. Um, but, you know, we, for us Christians, we know that God protects his word. We can trust his word. No matter what new cult or fad comes in and try to add to scripture, we don't need to believe any of those things. We can trust our Bible. God protects his word so we can trust it. The truth that the church held back then from the time of the writings all the way into the Old Testament is, 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 is God kept it. And it is the word that we know now. He'll keep us 
with his word as, as well. We have assurance in the word of God. What you read is the inspired word of God. Trust the Bible that you possess. Study it, own it, and know all that there is to say about God. You'll never exhaust the depths and the riches of his word. Verse 22. Who is the liar if not the one who denies Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Everyone that denies that Jesus is the Messiah is a liar. This group of Gnostics claim that they have fellowship with God, they have fellowship with the Father, but their gospel is but they have a gospel that the church doesn't know about. John is countering them by saying that because of their denial of who Jesus is, his, his earthly incarnation, that he's fully man and fully God, that they, in a sense, deny the Father. They do not know the Father. These group of people who claim to know Christ, they have a false Christ. John said that since they deny the Son, they also deny the Father. This is a reference here back to the Gospel of John. John said that he and the Father are one. That, meaning Jesus said that he and the Father are one. Jesus said if you deny him, then you deny the Father. Think of this unity language that Jesus speaks of in the Gospel. Rejection of the Son is rejection of the Father. This involves every cult, every philosophy that says Jesus is not God, but just a great teacher. Or just a, 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 a good uh, you know, person cares about the poor, or that's, you know, that's all he is, just, just, just a good person. They diminish the deity and person of God, and who, people that do that, they are a liar. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father, he who confesses the Son has the Father as well. John's saying that you can't have one without the other. It is it's bundled together. Jesus, during the when he was baptized, God the Father said that this is when he's well pleased and, and to listen to him. But those who confess that Jesus is God, they're the ones that, uh, that have the Father. And those who counter it, those who deny it, they do not have the Father. This is where we need to be bold for the gospel. You must not be afraid to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. They will there will always be people that try to convince you otherwise, but you know that these people are liars. Jesus is the Messiah, and, and a person can't be saved unless they accept that truth. He's not simply just a teacher or a good speaker. No, he's the son of the living God. And anyone that denies that claim is a liar. Now, we live in a culture that seems arrogant to make such claims, but you understand that it is not arrogance if you speak truth. Isn't it interesting that if you're in a math class and the teacher said one plus one equals two, no one stands up and says, you're arrogant. Right? No one does that because it's true. When the, if, let's say, we're like standing here in a building across the street is on fire, and we say, hey, there's a fire going on. We need to call the, the fire department. No one's going to say, you're arrogant for saying that there's a fire. No, it's true. Yet I believe that we fear you know, the, the opposition because we're afraid of being made fun of, partially because we don't fully believe that the gospel is true. How is that a Christian can defend and make arguments for the, the best restaurants or the best athletes or the best car to buy or the best phone to get or best whatever and be so passionate, don't even care about the labels that they receive, but when it comes to defending the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and his deity, we shudder and become silent. The true saints will not deny Christ. 
but rather we will, de- we will defend him. In Luke chapter 12, verse 8 and 9, Jesus said, And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man, will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. A true saint is willing to confess him before any friend, before any coworker, before any family member, because they're not ashamed of Christ. True Christians must make a defense for the word. That's what 1 Peter 3.15 tells us. But rest assured that if you're a believer, God will place the accurate words for you to say. Later on, Luke chapter 12, verse 11 to 12, it says, Whenever they bring you before the synagogue, synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at the very hour what must be said. God promises that he'll give us the right words to say. But you can't have the right words to say unless you know the right things. When scripture tells us that God's word will not come back void, it isn't to say that you just read the Bible once and then forget about it. And randomly, when you're debating with someone, you'll recall everything that there is to know. No, the Holy Spirit uses what what, what's inside of you, what you know of God's word. It means that you need to, when you read God's word and you meditate on it, God will use the things that you know in, in, in the right context and you can explain it clear, clearly and faithfully. But you can't do that if you aren't devoted to God's word. We cannot give what we don't have. And if you don't have God's word in your heart, don't expect to be used by God. Notice verse 24. What you have heard from the beginning is to, re- is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the, in the Son and in the Father. The CSB here uses the word remain, and then the NASB uses the word abide. The word Abide is often used to think of a physical proximity, but John uses it to speak of a spiritual sense. This word abide is, is continuous. They are to continue to abide in the things of the Lord. And this, again, if you uh, understand that when you're reading First, Second, Third John, you should recall to mind his gospel that he wrote. Because in John 15, chapter 4, Christ said, Abide in me and I in you, just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it abides on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. And that's in terms of abiding in the Lord. Verse 7 of John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. This is truth. If you ask for truth, he'll give that to you. And then in verse 10, he uses the same word again. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's command and abide in his love. Jesus describes himself as the vine. And the first point is that we can't do anything without him. It is through him that we can do anything. The metaphor is obvious that we can't do anything without Christ, that we need to abide in him. Abiding in 1 John then is so much more than just doing something, rather it's actually something that's being done to you. It's actually an imperative. It's a command. It's imperative to enjoy the riches of God. It is less than about holding on to something, but rather someone holding on to you. 
something that someone does to you so that you can experience something like a blessing. In the Chinese culture, paying the bill is like a combat sport. You know what I mean? The people are like, oh, I'll pay for it. And they like fight around the tables, almost like an MMA fight. I think, there should, I think it should be a sport. People will get like titles for it and everything. But it's often like a battle royal just to get the check. And on occasion, you may have a meal with someone and they tell you, let me pay. And there's a command. They're telling you, let them pay. In that moment, you abided in his generosity. This is what John means when he uses the word abide here. It's an imperative to you while you're being a beneficiary of that. So when Jesus tell you, tells us to abide in him, it's more like a command that let yourself be loved by me. Let yourself uh, experience the grace that's from me. The result of that is blessing and growth. We experience what it's like to, be, to abide in God. It is a command that's based on the, on the grace of God. If you are his, you will be held by him and your life will represent him. Does this describe you? If you're abiding in Christ and being held by Christ, you will bear fruit. The end of this first, the end of this, uh, the first was uh, will abide in the, in the future. This is that he will hold us and one, until the point where one day we'll see him. Jesus said that those who deny Jesus, those who deny him, but if uh, there, there, are, there are those who deny him, but if they continue to believe, they will have someone that will represent them to the Father. That's why in the next verse, he said, and this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. The result of what you have heard is that you will remember the promise that he's made. God gave us his word. He gave us his promise. The chief one is, the, is eternal life. If these truths are, if the truths that's revealed in scripture are real, and you hold on to these truths, then you will have eternal life. There is eternal life in the word of our Savior. Part of abiding in God is that we abide in his promises as well. You need to live life enjoying and anticipating what God has prepared for you. Again, I'm thinking when John is talking about this, he's thinking back to the gospel of John in John 14, where Christ said that he's preparing a place for them. It's a place of many, it's like a house with many rooms. It's a metaphor for heaven. It's probably what John was thinking about. He, he remembers the promise that God has, has made for him, for the disciples, and every saint of the future. Not only did Jesus say that we can't do anything with, without him, but we won't even have heaven without him. Are you aware that there are people in the world that only have pages of scripture? little shreds of God's word because they're not allowed to have God's word. So they only have parts of it and individuals that just have little bits and they, they memorize it. They devote their lives just knowing these little passages and they hold on to the promises of these verses. Other people in the world, they have to memorize it. They have to memorize portions of scripture and that's all they have. They have these little scraps or they're just memorizing it and every time they're memorizing it, they're reciting it to themselves they're remembering the promises of God. They hang on to the hope that they see. And these people are willing to die for Christ because they remember the promises that's promised to them. They're willing to die because of the hope that they know will come to pass. And when we think of 
our time, when we think of our culture, when we think about us, people have multiple copies. I just said I lost my NASB up here, and I just have this other Bible. We have multiple Bibles. We have in our apps. We have it all over the place. And yet we aren't willing to commit the time and energy to know the word of God. This is probably why Christians in America come across as people that live without hope. They aren't hopeful because they don't truly trust the promises that God has made for them that is revealed. True Christians should be and must be the most hopeful people. The saints are the most excited people because we have something that the world does not. We have the promise of God for eternal life. We should be the most excited because we know that this, the best thing of this world is not the best thing that, uh, that the Lord has in store for us. Every day for us should feel like Christmas Eve. We should always be looking forward in life with delight because we know what the future has in store for us. When you compare your plans for this weekend or the following week or the following month or the following year and compare that to heaven, how does heaven fare to you? Is heaven something that you really look forward to or the things in this world excite you more than heaven? Is heaven just an afterthought? What I am afraid of for the church is that we are not satisfied in Christ, that we, we aren't dwelling on the promises of Scripture. Some of us think that if I have this dating relationship, if I have my career, if I have enough money, if I have this or that, then I will be happy. But you have to understand we have Jesus You have him and all the promises that he has in store for us will come to pass. Even when we preach and teach the gospel weekly, some of you are looking to the promises of Jesus and you're not even moved by the realities of it. A large part of you want want more of this world because Christ isn't enough. So you complain and you are constantly discontent. The solution is to keep trusting in the word of God, trust in the promises of God. Again, these, you realize that people that are willing to die for Christ, they're willing to do it because they know what promises God has made for them. They believe everything that they've read, everything that they've heard to the point of dying for the word of God. Yet so many of us fail to even consistently read God's word because part of us don't care about the promises of God. We read our Bibles out of obligation. You understand that every day that passes is a day that's closer to God fulfilling his promises that's revealed in this book. Reading God's word should not be a chore. If you're reading God's word just as just to have like talking points with other Christians, God is not pleased with that. He wants you to delight in the promise that he's made for you. This means of grace, the Bible, is for us to find joy. God could have just simply just told audibly to the apostles and say, okay, tell this to the other person. And then everyone just has to audibly tell each other his promises. But instead, no, he gave us an extra means of grace by having his word written down so that we can read it. And this, is, this shows us his love for us, that he wants us to know him through his word. I saw this little quote this past week. It said, God is not what we think we, he is. God is what we read about in his word. As Christians, one of the greatest things that we have in this life is the promises that's revealed in his word. They will come to pass. Do you believe that? These things will actually happen. 
The world looks at the Bible and it looks like this is just a, a fantasy book. It's, it's not really going to happen. It's fiction. And I fear that that's the mindset of some of you. You think the Bible like the world because you are of the world. Why those promises don't matter to you? Because you are not a saint. God's people will look forward to God's promise. And this goes from the old to the new and to us. So do you look forward to the promises of God? The test of assurance is this. What do you look forward to the most? What do you love the most? If you love Jesus, you'll stay in the faith. You'll abide in Christ. You'll confess Jesus as Lord. And you will look forward to the promises of God. If you do love Jesus, then you'll stay in the faith, then you'll abide in the truth, then you'll confess his name before others, and you look forward to the days where his promises are fulfilled. But if those things are not a description of you, this stands the reason that you are not one of us, and eventually you will leave us, but in reality, you are never of us. Let us pray. Lord, we're thankful for your written word that you've given us as a way to dive deeper into who you are. Lord, we know we'll never exhaust your word, but even though our flesh sometimes gets tempted to not delight in your word, I pray that you would just awaken us uh, to a greater love for you. Lord, it's very easy for us to be tempted to love the things of the world because there's something that we see, but yet we do see your word in scripture. May your promises be real to us. May it, be, may it solidify in our minds that you love us and you have so much in store for us that's beyond this life. Lord, may we walk faithfully and live holy lives. May we be bold to share the, the gospel, the good news to those in our lives, that we're not ashamed, um, that we, what we have is real, and the things that every false cult, every worldview, that they all have things that will eventually burn. But what we have you, we have your word, May we abide in your love, Lord, and we continue to dwell in the goodness of the gospel. We thank you for this time in your son's name. Amen.